Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad that Guy Talk is doing the extended version today. Remember like when you'd get a British album, they had the extended play oh, versions oh, yeah. of the songs. Do you remember that? Yep. It was like so cool. You have mm. a British album. <laughs> and the two minute and 30 second song is now all of a sudden four minutes. Oh, right. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that was so cool. I miss my LPs. <laughs> Anyway, let me know what your questions are. We've got Guy Talk until the bottom of the hour, and then uh, Reverend John Perkins is going to be joining me, one of the last civil rights leaders. He's 92 years old. Oh, really? Wow. Quite a story. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Have you taped that already? Or? I have taped it, yes. Wow. Where yep. does he live? I believe he lives in Alabama. Wow. Or, Wonderful. Yeah. Great you got that. That is amazing. I'll listen to that. Yeah. It was great. I, we called him at, right at the time we were going to record and we got his voicemail, and I think he was at, he was napping. Oh, no. <laughs> so he said, oh, give me 10 minutes. <laughs> Love it. And he was spectacular. Wow. So that's, uh, that's coming up at 530. But we've got time for your questions. Send them over, 877-933-2484. Here's an interesting question. Are Adam and Eve the only persons who started life as an adult? Was, yep. Do we know they started it as an adult? Well, yeah, I think we do. I mean... Uh, I think. Well, who knows? We don't know all the details of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but I, I don't. I don't know of anybody that started out at eighty. You know, forty, thirty, twenty. Mm-hmm. So I think the answer to that is yes. Okay. Awesome. All right. Here's another question. In Joshua, when the Israelites were working on the destruction of the city, they were blowing trumpets and rams horns. What's the significance in calling out those two different instruments? I mean, the city of Jericho. Stopped them. Next. Next. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there's any significance. Sometimes the Bible uses two uh, synonyms, and um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you'd have to then wonder if there's significance in some of the different kinds of instruments in the book of Psalms, right? Is, is, are these, I mean, th- these were probably just the instruments of the day for Israel. I'm not, I mean, it, certainly there's a ton of symbolism. We don't, we don't want to walk away from that idea within the biblical text. The Jews, they, they loved there is symbolism and their plays on words and, and the meanings, you know, that's why the, the number 40 shows up some 168 times in the old Testament. And it tends to be seen as a season of time in which something is put to death and something else is being brought to life. And so these are real literal things and events, mm-hmm. I believe that are happening in the text, but they are teaching us something different. I just don't know if those horns of Jericho are of and, that same kind of You know, of and I get nervous symbolism. when people find symbolic meaning in everything in the right. Bible. You gotta be and, careful. and in one sense, we're to read the Bible, like we read the newspaper that you know when they're being literal and you know when they're being figurative. Mm-hmm. So if they use two different words in Joshua, is there some deep meaning in this? Probably not. They're just telling you the story. So I, I get nervous when people take something out of the Bible and make it say something it doesn't. Just read the Bible as a normal thing. I, it's not a normal thing, but you know what I mean. You know what yeah, I, I mean? do. I do. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think there's I think there's themes that you can tease out, like when things are birthed new through the waters. I mean, I think the the, the story of Egypt is very much also a story of what it means to be enslaved to sin. It really happened. Mm-hmm. There's a real Pharaoh, there's real Israelites, but it's teaching us about slavery to sin and the redemption through the waters that becomes the precursor of baptism. There, I think you can fairly go into some of those sorts of places. Yeah. But to your point, Brock, I think we can over symbolize things, and especially if you get. Do you guys remember the Bible Code? Was that the name of that oh, where people oh, were looking yes, for yes. hidden meanings and the a lot, uh, algorithms of the text mm-hmm. and all? And it was in mm-hmm. just. Oh, gosh, we're not not going to go down those roads. No. Yeah. Here's a question from a female. She said, I've been called to witness to a male co-worker and friend. He has expressed relationship issues with his fiance and recently told me that he looks forward to our conversations Mm -hmm. because he feels heard. That's a, I've done a lot of counseling in these situations and that's not a healthy situation. Uh, If she wants to witness to him, she needs to take somebody else along with her and they need to meet as a group. One of the rules I had as a senior pastor, uh, I, I would not go visit the opposite sex alone. I always had to have somebody with me, you know, in terms of another male or whatever. So I would advise her, yep, if he wants to talk, I'm all for it. But make sure you bring somebody else along and then you do it as a group, not as just two individuals. Yeah, I've heard the the term, and maybe you have two parish in, in some of that counseling, a relational affair or emotional affair where you're leaning into somebody else for, uh, relationally and emotionally. Uh, because you're having trouble with the person that you're supposed to be in a relationship with, and th- those are those kind of affairs are devastating and damaging. Uh, they re- and so I would assume that's and, part of what's at play. And they are incredibly seductive. Yeah, they this are, is they. what the devil loves to use because it creates confusion for everybody. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, stay away from that as much as you can. I mean, that's got to be red, 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 deep red flag when somebody's saying, I really like the way you make me feel mm-hmm. while um, the fiance, you have trouble there. That I mean, you can't wave a redder flag than that at mm-hmm. that point. Um, let's see. Here's a question. With all the chaos going on in the country and in the world right now, I have a question. I often hear people say that no matter how bad it gets, God is in control. Yeah. That's hard to understand with so much pain and sorrow. Um, the other day I heard a Bible teacher saying Jesus will have the final word, and that sort of clicked with my heart. Yeah, I, this is the question, right? I mean, there's a, there's a few questions that are going to come up that are troubling on every level, and, and I think we've talked about it on Guy Talk over the years, uh, or, or the months during this program, and, and, a, and how do you understand God's sovereignty in the midst of the sorrow and suffering? It just... Sometimes I'll do a mic check before a sermon in, in church, and the mic check is basically to whoever has come early to church. Hey, just wh- what question do you have? Just to test the mic, what question do you think it is? It's about how do we understand sin, sorrow, and suffering in the midst of the sovereignty of God. And so I, th- I think we would be remiss to say we have a lockdown answer on that question. I think it does help to know that however else we understand God's sovereignty, and there's a lot of ways to understand it, however else we understand it is that his kingdom will remain in the end. His kingdom is mm-hmm. the only eternal kingdom that there will be the great reconciliation, that Jesus will return unveiled in glory, like all of that, the sovereignty of God. But then from there, and you get into the theological weeds, there's a lot of different conversations people have about where's the agency of human beings and free will, and how does that contribute to the suffering, and does God allow suffering? Because it seems the text seems to have multiple examples of all parts of that view, but the sovereignty of God is that um, he will return, and he will set all things right, and that is not in question. I think it gets confusing for people the way we use biblical language. And what I mean by that, my niece died at age 12 of a heart attack in a roller skating rink. It was a terrible situation. At the funeral, uh, pastor, Lutheran pastor, nice guy, but he literally used that term, yeah, she's died, but God's still in control. But he never went beyond that mm-hmm. and explained what that meant. 
And it embittered some of my family members because they said, why would the Lord take this beautiful little girl away from us? That's where it really gets difficult. But when you start to think about the fact that Jesus is going to have the final say and that death is not the final say, as tragic as this is, she's not lost to eternity. And she, you will see her again in the kingdom of God if you trust in Jesus. Mm. So I think the language of God in control may be biblically accurate. I think it's when we use it and how we use it that makes all the difference in the world. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. of how Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Mm-hmm. Again, I will say rejoice. Uh, rejoice in the Lord for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, uh, here's what I'm thinking. I just went on vacation to Italy, had the time of my life, the whole time, the heel, the pain in my heel was was rough. And at the end of every day, my feet were killing me. And uh, I could have cut the vacation short, but not me. (laughs) And and even, here's the deal. Even for that time in Italy, I was limping around Italy. I was having the time of my life. And I think when God says, rejoice in the Lord always, he means, I I thought to myself as I was limping, there's a sermon illustration in this. And the sermon illustration, I think, is we've all got our limping heel. Mm. We've all got pain or sorrow in some sort. And, and, in spite of it all, God says, rejoice in the Lord always that I can find fun in God and enjoyment in God, even when everything, my body and everything else has fallen apart. Mm. So just keep that. your eyes on Jesus and you'll find some reason to rejoice. Mm. Again, quoting Martin Luther 500 years ago, when I look at myself, I see no way I can be saved. When I look at Jesus, I see no way I can be lost. Next. All right. JC wants to know, can you ask the guys why they think some commandments are bigger than others? For example, people will say, well, I've never killed anyone, but oftentimes break some of the other commandments. Mm -hmm. Like they prioritize, well, I've never killed anybody, but they don't know Scripture well. well." And you know what most people say to that? Mm. All sin is the same in God's eyes. That's not true. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would mm-hmm. answer that question, Bill, with, well, killing and, and hating, and it's all the same. No, it isn't. Cause, and you know why I say that? Jesus said to Pilate, he, Judas, who delivered me up to you, is guilty of the greater, greater sin. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'd rather you hate me than kill me. There are, there are degrees of sin. I don't think you have to go the Catholic route of categorizing the venial from the mortal, but but I think there it's 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 inaccurate to say that all sin is the same. Well, all sin will damn you. I mean, I heard one pastor preach, and he said, all sin is mortal, and that's true. Mm-hmm. All sin sure. will get you to hell without the blood of Christ. But there are sins that wreck people more than others. Yeah, I think often within kingdom economics, uh, you, you're looking at the rippling impact of a decision or a behavior. And so when you when you think about the rippling impact of that, um, how uh, killing another person will ripple out for years and years and years and maybe yes. destroy generations. And so as opposed to a white lie a, a five-year-old tells when they steal the extra cookie from the cookie jar, both of those things are sin. And that white lie left unchecked, that power of sin will grow and grow and grow. It needs every bit of redemption that the killing does. But when you talk about greater and lesser sins, you're talking about the rippling impact within this world relationally, socially. And, and so I think Jesus is always talking about discerning things by their fruit or lack thereof. Like, how does it ripple out into the future? So I don't, I don't want to diminish the impact of a white lie because, again, left unchecked, it's the start of a leprosy that will just disfigure and destroy. It's got to be dealt with. But we're talking about the rippling impact in terms of what it creates, that event. And, and why was Judas's sin bigger than Pilate's sin, do you think? 
I think his Judas knew a lot more. Yeah, I think you're right about that, too. Judas had been with Jesus for three. And see, that's the deal. When we Christians sin, we need the blood of Christ because we know a lot more than most people. Yeah, I think that's part of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? When you you have experienced and tasted the the death-breaking power of the Spirit and you say no dice to this thing, that's That's why that is considered, I suppose, in some language, the unforgivable sin. It's like, how would you come back from that if you have walked away from the only power that conquers sin and death? There's nothing left for you at that point. And I remember one Lutheran professor saying, yeah, that's when the law speaks the loudest. When you, as a believer, knowing what you're doing, commit a sin, yeah, which is why believers as much as anybody need the blood of Christ. Yeah. There are two words I have for Christians. Repent quickly. Yeah. I and like that's it. really the key. Yeah. We'll take a short break and we come back. More guy talk or guys who talk. We've got lots of questions still to try to cover when we come back. I think, gentlemen, we're going to be back addressing uh, trumpets and ram's horns one more time. We'll be right back. having above average fun today. How about you guys? We are too. Yes. Great time. Let's just go back quickly to the horns uh, and trumpets. And the note is that God's instruction isn't just random. There's a reason why he instructed them to use trumpets and ram's horns, horns of celebration and horns of war. That's a great point. Works works for me. That works for me too. Well, you know, Revelation talks about the trumpet a lot. And so there's, there's something to that with the presence of the Lord. Yeah. Okay. Scott wants to know, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus walks on the water after he fed the 5,000. His disciples were astounded to see him on the water, but Scripture says that their hearts were hardened. Can you explain why their hearts, why they had hard hearts? The question is, was their, were their hearts hardened by themselves or yeah, by right. God? Yeah, right. I think I always assume hardened by God. And I think God didn't want people to quite know who Jesus was mm. until after the resurrection. I think that's a really good point, Brock. Because, you right? know, Jesus they, they're, uh, Jesus does something, and then Jesus tells the disciples, now don't tell anybody yeah. this, because they were expecting this power and glory Messiah not to die on a cross. Jesus had to die mm-hmm. on the cross. Mm-hmm. So this is called the, the veiled Messiahship of Jesus in the book of Luke, for instance, or Mark, where Jesus keeps saying, yeah, I did that miracle, but don't tell anybody. And then after the resurrection, they understand, oh, the Messiah had to die. And so I think that's part of what's going on. I think that's really helpful. Like I'm thinking about the wedding of Cana. Doesn't he say to his mother, it's not my time? Mm -hmm. Isn't that part of that famous passage? And so there's something about the timeliness of this that I I bet plays in. Mm -hmm. I do. I agree. And think also of human nature. It's easy to have a hard heart. It's easy not to believe. It's easy to look at something and say, I don't really believe that. Uh, They had to learn. And they learned, and think about it. They saw the resurrection. They saw the risen Lord. He said to Thomas, put your hand here. Nothing really happened until when? The day of Pentecost, 40 days later. That's astounding and they got to the me. Spirit, Holy Spirit. Yeah. yeah. His question, does repentance depend on us simply turning from sin to God, or does it require God to put something in us first to want to repent, and then we will be able to repent? Yes well, and Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, the Lord works in our heart to bring us to repentance. I mean, most of us are not conscious of a need to do it unless we get trapped or we get in trouble. But when the Lord works within your heart to say that was wrong. The other thing, too, we most often misinterpret what that word means, a repentance. Repentance doesn't mean a new direction or whatever. It means an exchange of mind. We're exchanging our minds for the minds of Jesus is how he looks at this, what he says about this. And when you truly repent, you no longer have the way you will look at it. It's the way Jesus looks at it from that point on. That's genuine biblical repentance. And oftentimes we don't do that well. I'll tell you the two verses that come to mind. If the question is, does does God do the repentance in our heart or is that something we do? Two verses come to mind. Uh, Paul says, Timothy, correct your opponents with gentleness if perhaps God might grant them repentance mm-hmm. to be set free from him who held him captive. And then I think of the the verse in Acts when the Gentiles get saved and it's and the Jewish Christians are kind of surprised and they say, well, then God has granted the repentance to Gentiles that leads to life. So in both those verses, yeah, we're commanded to repent. We got to do it. I can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. Right. All right. What would you say to a 22-year-old my son, who thinks it was possibly selfish for God to create us as he knew many would perish, reject him. We had a great discussion around it, but would love to hear from you guys. Well, that's a big one. I've heard, that from, one. Yeah. I've heard that from a lot of people, and I understand the question. Uh, but what I've come to realize is this. The Lord, ultimate, his purpose is always love. It's always grace. It's always the bigger picture. If we rebel against that or whatever, he knows the consequences. But the other thing is, I can't change it. He's going to do what he's going to do. And my goal is to align my life with the Word of God and what he says. And I don't think the Lord is is wicked or vengeful or anything like that. He does what he does because he knows the ultimate consequences beyond anything we can see. And so some are condemned and some are not by faith in Jesus. And he understands what he's doing when he does that. But I understand the discussion. I have three sons also. Peter, any thoughts? Yeah, that one's hard. I mean, I, I, yeah. I can't say I haven't wrestled with that one. And, and I think to to assume that we can understand the ways of God that way, like, but I, I sympathize with the question, right? Yeah. And, but at the same time, God created space. Um, f- love requires the possibility of space for not love and for in order for it to be real love. Like love, love requires some kind of choice. It requires some sort of re- relationality that's authentic. And And so if Hallie, my wife, loved me, because she was forced to or compelled to somehow, there was no agency, no will in that, it wouldn't actually be love. But that risks tremendous hurt when you when there is some measure of agency or free will. So I wouldn't say that it's God being selfish. I would say that there was a risk involved in multiplying the Trinitarian life among the imagers who are meant to populate then and moving forward in the world in what was supposed to be this unfolding party of love. But in order to have love, I think you have to say there has to be some measure of choice along with it, which means that there is risk involved. So I don't think it's about a selfish God. Uh, I think it is about um, the risk of love. Well, we always talk about, you know, being created in the image of God. I've heard lots of interpretations of that. The one that I keep coming back to is that freedom of will. He gives us the ability to make choices, to love or to not love. He works within our heart to bring us to that point. But the ultimate decision to love still is, is the Holy Spirit brought me to that. But will I yield to that? Will I become that person of love? And there is the, where the power is. And so I would say that was the ultimate form of love ever, that the Lord would give us the ability to choose and not just be told what to do. Yeah, and I would, I would encourage that, Mom, if, if the 
son is still open to this, sit down and read together Romans chapter 9, where Paul gets into that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you how do you put together the fact that God hardens people's hearts, some are saved, some are damned, and why is that, and why is it that some are vessels of wrath and some are vessels of mercy? And And Paul says... Oh, the depths of the wisdom of God. Who can understand all this? Basically, I'm paraphrasing and making it up a little there. But he says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? God's going to do what he wants. He's not going to submit to us. But but read Romans chapter 9 on that. So, Tom, we just have a couple minutes left. Tom Brock, I'd love to hear um, where what happened to you spiritually three weeks in Rome. You know, because this is time away. You're on your own. You're doing some adventure. Yeah. You're out of your normal environment. Mm-hmm. You're not making your pottery. Yep. You're not in your routines. What mm-hmm. did it do for you? Three weeks. I was. I wasn't in Rome the whole three weeks, but I was at the end, and I was all over Italy. What did it do? Phil, you're making me feel guilty because <laughs> I was just having fun. Okay. For three weeks, that's all I did was have fun. There, I had. I prayed, of course. And yeah. I stayed with Catholic nuns a couple times, mm-hmm. but uh, and none of them spoke <laughs> we English. We have to explain that. Well, no, well, I mean, they have a guest house, so I'm. I, but none of them spoke English. So okay. I spent a. I spent all that time talking to pretty much absolutely nobody okay. and had a wonderful time. Okay. <laughs> but so I wish I could tell you there was some great spiritual insight. But I was just having fun. Okay. Yeah. And I think there is a time to be Relax. refreshed in the Lord, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, and yeah. there is time to... Yeah, and I, I kind of needed it. I, You know, the ministry has gone through changes, and that's kind of a stress. And so I was just romping and frolicking. Yeah. And the whole idea of an extended rest period, mm-hmm. time to get quiet, create some margin in your life where you can be hearing from God. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, we're just going to fill our time and, and our activities with things that will keep us distracted or we'll be busy executing something, right? Yeah. But um, you know what I have learned? Again, I took I took salvation pamphlets to Italy and was able to give some of them out. Good. And it's just amazing. You put them in your pocket and you see what the Lord does. Mm. And boom. And I, I, it's as hard for me to witness as strangers as anybody. But it's just becoming kind of easy when you just put them in your pocket. And the people that some, some guy from America who... Um, is in Italy for some Roman Catholic thing, and I was able just to, well, I'm a pastor, and here's the pamphlet, and, you know, et cetera. So. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting how the Lord works. When I, I got into bow hunting years ago, and the simple thing is, I thought I was going out to hunt deer. Jesus had the idea. He wanted me to learn to meditate because I would sit there for hours and see nothing. Mm-hmm. And for the first five years, I got nothing. But I got the Lord Jesus in a way I never thought possible, and I would have never chosen that on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're designed for the for the rhythms of rest. I think we need to take that rest time. I mean, if if we apply the even the work life, usually there's a pretty significantly diminishing return for every hour above thirty in a work week, and and I think that that applies to some kingdom, kingdom economics too. And I think we have to be careful not to assume that we have to be doing something that we perceive to be important for the Lord all the time when He does call us to rest, so we can just be that much more effective. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, here's a text that just came in from Rosella. I would like to hear the dog joke. Unfortunately, we're out of, unfortunately, we're out of time. DiMaggio. But next next week, no, first thing, not, Bill. No, not next week. Wham. No, no. That, I'll type it out and send it to you. All right. That's all the time we have. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here for the extended Guy Talk version. It's always a delight. And I love the questions, and I love all the listeners. We're going to take a short break. When we come back... John Perkins, 92 years old. I want to listen to that. I bet you do. I do. All right, we'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the show. I'm so thrilled to be able to talk to Dr. John Perkins. He's one of the last living civil rights leaders who fought for equality and reconciliation throughout most of his life. He's written his final book called Count It All Joy. And it is a, uh, a lovely uh, book that is talking about the paradox of suffering. Uh, John, welcome to the show. It's good to be on here with you. Thank you. One. Thank you so much. I know in your book, Counted All Joy, you, you reflect on the persecuted life of Job in the Bible. What a powerful story that is. It, it is. It's a good illustration of, of, of life. We'll get into that. Of course. Let's talk about uh, the unanswered why when we don't understand our suffering. Yeah, I think James, supposedly the half-brother of Jesus, mm-hmm. was one early writers of that book and that you can imagine now we're moving now towards 70 AD and how the church that's gonna almost like climax the suffering leading after the death of Jesus and the joy that came with the Holy Spirit but also the suffering that came with that and how we have to use that suffering assume that that suffering is a part of the discipline that makes us better people. So, but the question is always, why do God choose people to suffer? Yeah, so that's, it's a good question. Yeah. Now, John, your personal uh, suffering, um, you talk about in your book a little bit, you have known quite a bit of pain and suffering in many forms, and it really starts back as far as uh, losing your mother when you were only, what, seven months old? Oh, seven months old. I, I believe as I reflect back in coming to know Christ when I was about 27, I think there are some stories throughout that life that uh, when I did come to faith, reflecting on those, uh, not not reflecting on them not seeing them at that point as suffering, although I could feel the agony and the loneliness. Mm-hmm. So I, there's always been a sort of a lonely spot in my life. And I I think I have embraced it. It embraced me, chose me like Job. Job didn't know why he was suffering. The conversation wasn't with Job. The conversation was with a bragging on Job before Satan. So Job don't know. That's how we get into the idea of it's all right, question your suffering. God might have chosen you to suffer in order to grow. I hope that has been the meaning of my life. I know it has been the meaning of my life sort of intellectually, and that gives me some reality, some meaning that I ordinarily wouldn't have had. Yeah, there, uh, I was reading that your your dear, dear mother uh, died of uh, malnutrition. Would that have been around 1930? 
that's who would have been. She, she, I would have been seven months old, and that was just what three years into the Great Depression, mm-hmm. and we were sharecrop bootleggers living on the wrong side of the track, not with a deep religious conviction until I was converted in in, in 1957. So the first part of my life was not just suffering, you know, my brother getting killed, my sister getting murdered, my home boyfriend, and and all of those other things. But you reflect back when you come into Christ and you look for meaning in those things. And you then find a lot of your life is being shaped by that that passion and loneliness of life. And I have learned a lot from a guy named Henry now mm-hmm. in in terms of how do God turn that passion into meaning in your own life to serve him with. So that's the thought. But the, but it's a part of a, a whole what I call my manifesto life, sitting down and trying to figure life out and even trying to figure it out now at, at, at 91 with cancer and about 10 operations three for cancer and still looking for <laughs> looking for meaning out of that just the pursuit itself have turned into a joy in my life and and now at 92 with cancer and and still finding both joy and pain and still trying to find meaning in that John, that's quite a resilient faith that you have had throughout your life. Uh, so I, I stand and, and give honor to God for the way he has sustained you and kept you and given you this platform uh, on which you're continuing to bring glory to his name as a result. Thank you, and continue to pray for me that I'm thinking about what it means now to be this age, my wife, been married to her for 71 uh, years. She's 89, and she's uh, long into uh, her life coming to an end. And I was thinking this morning about how I can be here in this life and what it means to try to be faithful unto death. Mm-hmm. John, if you would talk about the way in which God has tested you through suffering. I know uh, suffering tests our faith, and some of us get closer to God, and some of us turn away from God in the middle of suffering. And I know your story is one where you stayed close to God through your suffering. Yeah. As I look back at it, I think my grandmother contributed a lot to that as a black person growing up in Mississippi, the, the poverty the exploitation, all that. But I think what shaped me, I believe, is that one, we was bootleggers. You know what that was in Prohibition days. Mm-hmm. And the sheriff came out. We was on a plantation. They were on a plantation, that sharecropping. And everybody was in the field, the women and the children, the older children being in the field working. And the sheriff came and, and said he found some whiskey in our room on one of those little cots we slept under. And my grandmother, she didn't believe it. And he told her he was going to take her to jail. She was there with five or six of us kids taking care of us. 
and he said to her, "Hey, babe, I'm saying call her. I want to take you to jail." And she said, "Don't think of it. Here I am taking care of these children, and you think I want to willing to go with you to jail?" She said, "If I was a man, I would kick you behind." <laughs> and we we were saying, "At little children, if you get him on the ground, we'll get him." I think that affirmed my human dignity. But before they had tried to make me believe that I was less than them and that I'm going to believe that, I think my my grandmother's courage really made it so I could say to white folks, come, let's play together. So I never did believe that separate and equal had any meaning for one dignity. If it did anything, it was an attempt to destroy the dignity of people. But if you bring people up believing that, that was about worse as it could be. And, and, and that's what they did for black folks, Mr. So-and-so, this and that. Uh, and, and instead of recognize that there is one God, one human race, and we was created in, in that in, image and that we have inherited dignity. That's about the worst you can do to a people. Turn in, in the end, both of those turns into violence. If you overbelieve in yourself, you become pride, lustful, that releases in him self-motivated sin. The lust of flesh, lust of eye, and a pride of life. So I think I got a sense of equality, and that made it worse. And and to take people's dignity away and put it in a political self-serving system is violent within itself. Probably leads to genocide. I, I think you could almost look at a nation like Afghanistan. They evidently believe in their own inherited dignity somehow or another. And that they won't let no colonizing white folks who feel a sense of imperialism hold them in the dirt, which I believe that we're in a sad shape right now because we have made those lies, virtues, in the crime and the violence and the self-killing in the black community, I think it has some of its roots in separate but unequal, which is uh, which is by this, to not to believe in yourself and to believe other people can give you dignity. We can affirm people's dignity. We can save in one pride, but uh, mankind was created to be the image and the reflection of God. It says that pretty sound in Genesis. In the image of God created them. Male and female created them. And so life is an extension of of God on earth. Mm-hmm. And for the Christian that can hear him say, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And then to try to suppress that I think with some uh, writer, the truth crushed to the ground will rise again. So, and now 
we're trying to do the same thing to white they, they did to us. And now white folks don't like that, and they they talking about critical racism. We want to stop y'all from trying to make us inferior. That's a big bite, man. So it got me a little bit fearful in the reality of where we're going. And the church is not handling that well. Mm-hmm. All right. John Perkins is my guest. His book is Counted All Joy, The Ridiculous Paradox of Suffering. We'll take a little break and when we come back. We'll have lots more with Dr. John Perkins. Talking to Dr. John Perkins today. He's written a book called Count It All Joy, The Ridiculous Paradox of Suffering. And John, uh, when we talk about suffering, it's it's nothing we really choose, but if we're going to become more like Jesus when we suffer, uh, we will be uh, suffering for the gospel and for justice and for other people. I think the suffering, and I think you'll confirm this, it helps prepare us to serve and comfort others. That's exactly what James is getting at. Through the Spirit, he's anticipating the pain that came after suffering of Christ on the cross and even after Gethsemane, which was an illustration of what is going to become the vicarious behavior and the mystery of suffering as relates to God's discipleship and creating a sense of repentance and gratitude in our own life, counting as a joy to suffer shame for his name. That becomes almost the tagline of the early Christians. They saw both the joy and that joy was worth it. In the early days, they said they counted it itself the joy. Well, joy is, you might say, of happiness, comparing it with happiness, uh, joy is sort of like love. It's sort of like the summa of human thoughts. It's the highest of praise to God for giving you the privilege to suffer, to join in his suffering. And doing that for others as he done it for all of us in the world. We're more like Jesus for we're suffering for the cause of the well-being of other people in the world. John, sometimes when people suffer, they think that God is mad at them or God is punishing them. What do you what do you say about that? I I think I think that seems to be uh a, a reality, and I, but, but most time we turn it into Satan because I think we would think that we was somewhat uh, speaking wrong about God. He shows 
in Job that he can keep us from that because the conversation of Job and God, it was about, it wasn't a conversation with Job at all. It was a conversation between Satan, God himself making that fight to show you that he's able to, uh, as Paul called it, keep you from stumbling, not falling. You know, he's able to uphold us. And that is the way by which he strengthened us by testing us. So it's like discipleship. It's like athletics. The more you discipline your life, the better you're going to be in taking the pain of others in your own life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, John, I'm just so curious about your life. You're 92 years old. You've been walking with the Lord for a, a long time. Would you mind telling my listeners how you came to saving faith uh, in Christ? I mean, you were spent a lot of years in bootlegging, so I'm curious as to how you came to understand that uh, Jesus was going to be where you were going to place your faith. Yeah, I didn't grow up in Christianity. We grew up around religion and being bootleggers. We had some idea of a God, but we would see God on the newspapers. We never saw ourselves in the newspaper unless we that we had killed somebody, did some wrong back in those days. We would see God around a lake of fire with a red suit on, keeping children out of the fire. So I didn't grow up think of God as positive to do anything for uh, me. And growing up in an emotional religion around us, but not really knowing the story of the Bible. My little son, when he was uh, about two and a half or three years old, about the time you begin to create good memory. Uh, some ladies, white and black, black ladies, but it was white church had been in a community in California, the community turning black, and they then was begin to reach out after those black in that community. And I'm thinking this is a, a good thing. I still think it was a good thing. My little son went to this good news club, and I, I could see something in his behavior. Just the culture he was going to was affirming God, reflecting itself in his kindness and his behavior. And so I asked him, what was he learning at this church? Now, I went to church from time to time at a funeral and especially the holidays, but it didn't have no deep roots on in, in me, and I didn't believe in just the emotionalism that that was Christianity. And I said, what are you, I asked him what he was learning, and he sung me a song. This was the first real meaning for me in life as it relates to God. He sung me a song as a little boy. Jesus loved the, the children, all the children of the world. Brown and yellow, black and white, they're all precious in his sight. Hmm. God loves the little children of the world. I believe, probably for the first time, that God loved me 
although I had been called a little uh, bad boy, did a little bad thing, stealing and doing those things, I realized that spoke to me for the first time. God loved, and I only think that could speak to me because of that experience I'd had with my grandmother. She had made me believe that I was equal to white folks. I didn't think that separate could be equal. And I saw, began to see that as a, one of the most miserable things that you can do to a person is, is make them doubt and feel bad with themselves by something they had nothing to do with. I agree with that completely, John. Um, so you met the Lord in 1957, but you fought in Okinawa as a soldier in Korea. What was it like being on the battlefield uh, not knowing Jesus, that you could end up losing your life? I, was, I was, went to Korea after the war. I mean, okay. I, I, went to, oh, okay. I went to Okinawa after the war. So I didn't fight, but I, I felt loyal. Uh, even though my brother, when he got killed, he had just come home uh, from the service after World War II. We we blacks still had a, a loyalty to our nation, and I didn't understand Brown versus the uh, Board of Education. It was about that time, but I, I did not believe that I was inferior. That's a big point. Once you affirm human dignity, you have been affirmed as a human being. Mm-hmm. It makes you a warrior. Yeah. Truth smashed to the ground will rise again. And and the rest of it and all of it, God save you from. He offers that mm-hmm. if we Confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, even now, as we are disciples, uh, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in it. He mm-hmm. comes into our life and gives us his new life, and then he brings on the repentance to make it conscious in our life through suffering. But he says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. Mm-hmm. And the rest of that, it comes through discipleship, testing us uh, as we come to know him, and testing him after we come to know him, and then having that sense of his consciousness in our life. Mm-hmm. And the suffering has makes us more like him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. John Perkins, thank you so much. You're 92 years old. I want to make sure I get an invitation to your 100th birthday party. Well, you know, I, I got stage two cancer. I don't get excited about that. <laughs> but, boy, I would be grateful <laughs> if I did that. That'd be lovely. Thank you so much for taking the time today, and God bless you, and thank you for your book, Counted All Joy. Great. Thank you for interviewing me. Thank you so much. Dr. John Perkins has been my guest.
His book, again, is called Count It All Joy, The Ridiculous Paradox of Suffering. So that wraps up our show for the day. And thanks to uh, all the guys and all the great questions that came in. I can always count on you to uh, send challenging questions. And you've done it once again. So thank you very much. And thanks to all the guys for their faithfulness. There's so many different ways to listen to Faith Radio. So thank you for listening to the show. It always means a lot to me that you uh, tune in. And you can listen online at myfaithradio.com. If you have one of those smart speakers in your house, you can tell it to turn on Faith Radio. And then it'll give you a a bunch of other prompts. You can talk back to it and uh, say, listen live or let me hear all the programs. You can also download the Faith Radio app. So many people have done that. And I promise you're going to love having that on your phone. Or you can go on-demand podcasts. Uh, after the show, you, you know that you can go to MyFaithRadio.com and you can go to any of the show pages, The Mornings with Carmen or Susie Larson Live or Afternoons with Me, and you can hear any of the programs you've heard. They're all there up on the podcast. They're easy to share. If you have a friend that you would like to send an episode to of something you heard, you can quite easily text it or email it to them. But that's our show for the day. Thank you so much. Have a great night, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.